Our first lesson will serve as the basis for both our children's devotion and our sermon this morning. It comes from Genesis chapter 8. Then God said to Noah, Come out of the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground, so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. So Noah came out, together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives, all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on land, came out of the ark, one kind after another. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, will never cease. Good morning. How are you guys today? Today I want to tell you a story. It's a story about two brothers named Jim and John. It was a beautiful summer day. And Jim and John got up and ran to the breakfast table, and they were excited to hurry up and finish their breakfast so they could get outside and play. But while they were at the table, their mom gave them some bad news. Sorry, boys, you can't go outside and play until your room is clean, because your room is a mess. Well, now Jim and John were not in such a hurry to finish their breakfast, because they didn't want to go clean their room at all. And that's when Jim stood up and said, I'm going to go use the bathroom quick. And he didn't come back, and he didn't come back, and he didn't come back, and he didn't come back. And John starts to wonder, where, what happened? Did, did Jim fall in? Well, Jim was cleaning up the room. And he came out, and he said, come on, John, let's go play. The room's done. And Mom said, what? And she went and checked, and the room was spotless. You think John was pretty thankful? Absolutely, right? He didn't want to clean the room, and all of a sudden it was done, and he didn't have to. He didn't deserve that, not at all, right? Well, the next week, something else happened. Jim and John got up. It's a beautiful day. They were super excited to go out and play. They are having breakfast, and Mom said, boys, you can't go outside yet. The room is messy. And John had an idea. He thought, I'm going to do the same thing Jim did last week. He went to use the bathroom, cleaned the room up super fast, really good job. Mom said, great, you guys can go out and play. Do you think Jim was the same amount of thankful as John. I don't think he would have been. And there's a simple reason. He did it last time, so it was kind of like it was John's turn. Like, that was only fair, right? Like, well, I cleaned it last time, so, yeah, I, I deserved to have you go clean it this time. Yeah. That made all the sense in the world, right? The first time, John was super thankful because he didn't deserve to have his room clean. But the second time, maybe Jim wasn't as thankful because he could think, well, I kind of deserve to have my room clean. I did it last time. Today we're talking about thankfulness. Fancy word for thankfulness is gratitude. Same thing. How grateful we are, how thankful we are, often is directly tied to how much we think we deserve something. 
So if you think you deserve it, you're probably not as thankful. If you don't think you deserve it, then you're really, really thankful. Well, we don't deserve God's love, but we have it. He loves us. Even though we don't deserve his love, that's called grace. And because God loves us, even though we don't deserve it, that makes us super thankful for all that God has done for us. And the more we come to appreciate all that God has done for us, even for sinners like us, the more and more thankful we become. Today we're going to talk about how our thankfulness is directly linked to grace, the love that God has shown to us in Jesus. Let's say a prayer and ask God to help us better appreciate his grace. Heavenly Father, each and every day um, we prove ourselves to be undeserving. We prove ourselves to be unworthy of the love that you have shown to us. We're sinners and we're sorry for that. But in Jesus, you have showed us just how much you love us, even though we're sinful. That's grace. And we ask that you would help us to appreciate your grace more and more each and every day as you help us to better understand just how sinful we are and just how much you love sinners like us. Help us to show our appreciation for your love shown to us through Jesus' death and resurrection that we might display our thanksgiving to you and to everyone around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we'll get to our text in Genesis chapter 8 in a few minutes. So just to kind of summarize some of the main thoughts of the text, um, Noah and his family are told to come out of the ark. That's a big deal. We'll talk about that in a, in a few minutes. They're obviously very thankful to be able to come out of the ark. They demonstrate that thankfulness with a sacrifice to the Lord, and the Lord makes some beautiful promises. So that's where we're going. Let's review how we got to that spot. It's always important to, to remind ourselves, because we, we easily forget, God did not create Adam and Eve to die. Death was not the plan. It's important for us to remember that often because we are surrounded by, by death all the time. It's always in front of us and it's always around us. And it's just a helpful thing to constantly remind ourselves this was not the plan. It didn't start that way. God told Adam and Eve, if you eat the fruit of this one tree, then you will surely die. And, and of course, the devil came playing mind games. Did God really say you can't eat from any of these trees. And Eve rightly said, no, just this one, or we will surely die. And then the devil directly contradicted what God said. You will not surely die. You know the story. Adam and Eve believed the lie. They ate the fruit, and death entered the world. Shows itself in the, the murder of one brother against another. Cain killing his brother Abel. Then we're told that Adam and Eve had another son, a son named Seth. But remember, this all exists within the context of a promise that God made. He made a, a promise that was very clear. One of Adam and Eve's descendants would crush the head of the serpent who had brought all this temptation and caused Adam and Eve to trip and fall. 
one human descendant of Adam and Eve was going to be this savior figure. I wonder if maybe when Seth was born, if Adam and Eve thought perhaps Seth is the one. Genesis 5 is this, at first, seemingly boring section, which really isn't very boring at all. It's the the genealogy from Adam to Seth to Noah. And they got all these big years, people who lived a very, very, very long time, and it'd be easy for that to grab your attention, but there's really something else that's intended to grab your attention. At the end of the description of the life of each man, we hear these words, and then he died, 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 died. all the way down to a man named Lamech. Lamech had a son and named him Noah. Noah means rest. And when Noah was born, Lamech said this, He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands, caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. Do you think Lamech thought that maybe his son Noah was the promised Savior? I wonder what it was like to be Lamech. That tolling of the bell, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died. Lamech is surrounded by sin and death. The impacts that God promised would happen, the ground being very hard to work, labor and toil and sweat and pain and, oh yeah, death. What did Lamech have? He had the promise of God. That's the only thing he had that mattered. And he's hoping maybe, maybe my son is the the promised Savior. The next verse says, After Noah was born, Lamech lived 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Lamech lived a total of 777 years. And then he died. Lamech died not knowing if Noah was the promised Savior or not. He died with one thing. The only thing he could take with him to the grave and beyond. The promise of God. God would send the Savior that he promised. The story continues 500 years later. Noah's got three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And the Lord has said 120 years and it's over. I'm done. It's getting so bad, I can't put up with the wickedness of mankind any longer. But God had this dilemma. He couldn't just destroy all mankind. If he did, he'd be a promise breaker. Because he had said that one of Adam and Eve's descendants would be the one to crush the serpent's head. He comes to Noah and his sons. And he says, build an ark. I'm sending a flood that's going to destroy every living thing. And in the 600th year of Noah's life, the second month on the 17th day, how's that for specificity? 600th year, second month, 17th day. The ark is done. Two of every kind of animal are on the ark with Noah, his wife, his three sons and their three wives. 
eight in all. Two of every kind of animal, except for the clean ones, the clean animals, the clean birds, there were seven pairs of those. God shuts the door of the ark and the journey begins. Can you imagine what was going through their minds as the ark first rose off the surface of the ground? As the water became so high that the boat started to float and probably move and rock. Five months of movement, of rocking, of churning. Five months to the day. 600th year of Noah's life. Seventh month. 17th day. Five months later. It hits solid ground and never moves again. The water's going down. And you might think, oh, all right, five months, long time, but they can get off the ark soon. Nope. <laughs> Not soon. Seven more months, 10 days of waiting and waiting and waiting, tending to the animals, waiting and waiting. One year and 10 days stuck inside that box. God told them to get in. They weren't getting out until God told them to get out. (laughs) And then our text. Can you imagine the gratitude? Can you imagine what they must have been thinking when they finally heard these words? Come out of the ark. You, your wife, and your sons and their wives bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. Everybody they knew and loved was dead. Every family member of the three women who had married Shem, Ham, and Japheth, dead. It's interesting to note, the text doesn't say that Shem, Ham, and Japheth were the only children that Noah had before the flood. It's likely that he had more. They didn't get to go. Everyone else is dead. They're the only ones alive. Why them? They were sinful just like everyone else. The sin that entered the world through Adam and Eve and then impacted every single generation after that was also in them. The tolling of the bell had only been pushed off for them. This was God's grace and God's grace alone that they walked off this boat and they were thankful. Would you expect them to show it with more death? Is that what follows? (laughs) Why were these animals on the boat in the first place? To preserve their lives, right? So that these unique Examples of God's creation could be preserved. And then you get off the ark, and yeah, there were more of the clean ones so that they could serve as food in the early days as they got off the ark, and even as sacrifices, that was a possibility. But is that where you would go first? Well, the Lord just preserved all this life. Let's kill some of it. Made all the sense in the world to Noah. If God's the one who wants these animals alive, they will survive. It would have been foolish for him to take 
seven pairs of one type of clean animal and sacrificed them all to the Lord. He took a portion, but it was a pretty large portion. A large percentage of all that remained on the face of the earth alive. He offers it to the Lord, and what do we hear? The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. Sacrifice that flowed from thankfulness, which flowed from the grace of God, was pleasing to the Lord. And the result were promises. Two beautiful promises. Never again will I curse the ground because of humans. Uh, literally here, it's, it's basically saying, never again will I increase the impact that sin has had on the land. I'm not going to make it worse than it is right now. Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. I didn't mention it earlier, but that's the reason that God gave for sending the flood in the first place. He said, I'm going to destroy all these living things because every inclination of the heart is evil from childhood. But now he says, even though it's still that way, I'm never going to do this again up to a point. As long as the earth endures, up to a point. Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Not going to spend a lot of time here, but just a real quick detour. We hear a lot about climate change, a lot about global warming. The answer from the Christian perspective is not to try to prove that climate change isn't happening or that global warming isn't real. Human beings in their sin are perfectly capable of messing things up. We are perfectly capable of contributing to an increase in the temperature of the world. But we should push back against the panic. Because we have a promise from our God. As long as he wants the earth to endure, it will be habitable. You might not be able to live in a coastal city in a hundred years if Jesus hasn't come back yet. That's possible. It's possible that places that now are quite arid and not all that habitable, become less arid and more habitable. But this one thing is certain. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, will never cease. The great English-speaking theologian C.S. Lewis once said, there's really only two kinds of people in the world. There's people who, by God's grace, have learned to pray, Lord, thy will be done. And then there's people to whom the Lord will say, thy will be done. That's what we see here. The world was full of people who were surrounded by pain and suffering and death. They looked at their lives and they said, the only thing I have to look forward to is death. Forget the will of the Lord. I'm going to do what I want to do. And the Lord said, okay. Thy will be done. You want life without me? Live without me forever. What is the will of the Lord? Is it not that all be saved? Is that not what he promised right from the very moment Adam and Eve fell into sin? That there would be a Savior? Is that not what he did as he preserved the lives of Noah and his family, that the Savior would come? As New Testament Christians, when we're in the Old Testament, we are, 
are, are scanning the horizon for a hill with three crosses on it, the center one, which holds the Son of God. And when we see it, off in the distance, we get our bearings. And we're able to see where we are. In this account, we see God preserving the promise to save all. We see God saying, sin is serious, but my desire to save even more so. We see him preserving a remnant of humanity that he might keep his promise to save all mankind from sin. When you were brought here, God made a promise to you. As you had water connected with the word of God poured onto you, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, God said, you are mine. You belong to me. It's an incredible promise. Peter talks about it in his first epistle. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That center cross once held the Son of God who took your sins and mine upon him and paid for each and every one of them, who rose from the dead so that the tolling of the bell, and then he died, 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 would sound different to you and to me. You wake up every morning, you are surrounded by sin and death, and the grave lies in front. The devil would have you despair. The devil would have you say, enough of the Lord's will, my will be done. But as baptized children of God, you have a promise from God. Wake up every day, you are baptized into Christ. Wake up feeling like total garbage over everything you did yesterday. Ah, but this one thing remains. You are baptized into Christ. Wake up worried and afraid that those around you might die, that you might die, that you might lose everything you have. You are baptized into Christ, and that means something. Peter doesn't reference the flood for nothing. He says that the waters of baptism, and yes, the waters of the flood are intimately connected. In the water of the flood, all these sinners died, but the water held up this boat, which saved eight. And in your baptism, that old man is drowned to death, and you are raised to live a new life and held up above all the death and destruction that lies below. There is an intimate connection between the promises that God has made to you in your baptism and what he did 
at the flood. Your God never breaks his promises, and he never will. If Jesus waits more than 100 years to come back, chances are everyone in here will have had the bell toll. And yet when it tolls, for the person sitting next to you or for you, it won't be the end. It'll be that moment when the angels carry you to the side of your God who makes promises he doesn't break. You are baptized into Christ and God has made a promise to you that you will have a clear conscience. That means you won't be afraid. When you stand before God, you won't wonder, what's he about to say? If Jesus comes back and you hear the trumpets blast, you won't all of a sudden be scared saying, what's going to happen to me? Because you know. You have the sure promises of God. You are baptized into Christ. What could this produce in us other than thanksgiving? As we hear the promises of God, as we learn to better appreciate his grace shown to us in Jesus, our faith grows. And what is that? Faith is the thing in us, given to us by God, that clings to his promises. And as our confidence in his sure promises grows, so does gratitude. Gratitude flows from grace. And should Jesus will to give us more days together, I look forward to demonstrating that gratitude to our God and to those around us with you. In Jesus' name, amen.